0: Thank you everyone for tuning in to Written in Blood History, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. The episode you're about to hear is a bit unique when compared to most of my other episodes for a few different reasons. Because our subject died as late as 2016, we have a lot of actual audio to pull from. And because he was so charismatic in front of a camera, the audio is gold. So I really had to temper myself when it came to how much of the audio I used for the podcast I tried to just keep it to where it reinforced a particular moment or point. Now, because this subject deals with so many private and public racial issues in America, the use of the N-word comes up quite a bit. I decided some of the quotes were too critical to the telling of our subject's life story to just leave them on the cutting room floor. But because of the sensitivity of the word, I didn't like the idea of my voice perpetuating the use of that word so I opted to cut the word out when it comes up with this sound. The idea is to not take away from the seriousness of the issues that we're dealing with, while at the same time not offending a contemporary audience. Lastly, this is, I think, the first episode with which I have an autobiography to really sink my teeth into. This creates incredible opportunities for insight, but also gives us a personal view of historical events. And perhaps, in a way, you're not accustomed to hearing. But remember, for most of this podcast, we are in the insane culture war periods of the late 60s and early 70s. The bottom line is really the tagline to my whole show, which is that history is people. These are their stories, and they are written in blood. And this story is Muhammad Ali's and no one else's. For no one else has ever had the audacity to proclaim themselves the greatest.
1: Give me a U! L- Give me a C! T- Give me a K! A- What's that spell, What's that for? What's
2: that spawn? What's that spell, a- What's that Well, come on, all of you big strong men. Uncle Sam needs your help again. Got himself in a terrible jam way down yonder in Vietnam. Put down your books and pick up a gun. We're
0: gonna have a whole lot of fun. What are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn The next stop is Vietnam
2: And it's five, six, seven, 6, 7, open up the 30 gates Well, there ain't no time to wonder why we all gonna die Now come
3: on, Wall Street, don't be slow I man, this is war a go-go There's plenty of good money Just what we crave to drop the bomb, drop it on a Viet Cong. And it's one, two, three. What are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. The next stop is Vietnam. And it's five, six, seven. Open up for the gates. Well, I ain't no time to wonder why. We all want to die.
2: Now come on, generals, let's move fast. Your big chances. In the summer
0: of 1960, a plane touched down at the Louisville International Airport bearing one of the USA's Olympic gold medal champions from Rome, an 18-year-old light heavyweight boxer named Cassius Clay. The door opened on the tarmac, and Clay's mother and father embraced their champion as though he had just come home from war. He had been overseas for 21 days, the longest this young man had ever been away from his family. They couldn't have been prouder of their son. A police motorcade escorted the champion downtown as throngs of crowds cheered on their son of Louisville, their son of Kentucky, they're all-American boy. Banners and signs reading, Welcome home, Cassius Clay, adorned every building and street corner. The mayor told the young man that he now had the key to the city. The governor granted him an audience. And it was rumored that President Eisenhower wanted a photo op. Cassius' father exuded a pride that only a father who witnesses his son hit the game-winning home run can comprehend, yet immeasurably greater. He draped his dilapidated and rotting front porch with American flags, and he painted his front steps red, white, and blue. Photographer's cameras exploded, flash, 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 as the proud father stood in front of his star-spangled home and put his arm around his son and began singing the national anthem. Everyone cheered, and many reached for their handkerchiefs. Cassius Clay adored his gold medal, and pride radiated from this kid like rays of the sun. It symbolized a bright and bountiful future for him. He ate with it. He slept with it. He never took it off. With this medal, he could do anything, be anything, go anywhere. At least he thought. Soon, the sharp metallic edges on the medallion began to dull, and the quote-unquote gold began to wear away from the surface. Quote, One Kentucky newspaper described my medal as, quote, the biggest prize any black boy ever brought back to Louisville. But if a white boy had brought back anything better to this city... I hadn't heard about it. End quote. One afternoon, still flush from his Olympic victory and still wearing his gold medal, Cassius Clay and his best friend Ronnie King were riding their motorbikes all over Louisville. But the wind was picking up and the clouds were threatening rain, so Cassius stopped his bike at the nearest restaurant. Ronnie told him, not here, not here. But Cassius didn't listen. They parked their bikes next to a row of Harley Davidsons, and the owners of the Hogs watched the two men from the restaurant window. The swastikas and Confederate flag badges on their jackets were as plain as day. When the pair walked into the restaurant, everyone knew who Cassius was, and Cassius knew who they were. Many of this gang had been to his fights. They grabbed a pair of stools at the counter, and the waitress each gave them a napkin, silverware, and glasses of water. Ronnie spoke first, ordering two hamburgers and two vanilla milkshakes. The waitress went into the kitchen, but was interrupted by a giant of a man hanging out in the back of the dining room. And as he was talking to the waitress, a thin-faced old black woman glanced out from the kitchen towards Cassius. The young waitress then returned, shoulders drooping, and whispered that she couldn't serve them here. But Cassius was confident. He knew what he was walking into, and he knew his gold medal was the key to the city, and it would change everything. And it wasn't the first time he and Ronnie had pulled a stunt like this. Cassius remembered they used to walk into white-only restaurants with makeshift turbans and pretend to speak in a phony Arabic language to get seated at the nicer eateries around town. And so Cassius leaned towards the waitress and said, Miss, I am Cassius Clay, the Olympic champion. And Ronnie pulled the gold medal off from under the champ's shirt with a shit eaten grin, no doubt. The waitress appeared impressed and ran back to the kitchen. Then booming from the back of the restaurant was another voice. I don't give a damn who he is. I done told you we don't serve no n- (laughs) The waitress cupped her face in her hands and returned to the table. The restaurant was dead silent. Cassius' heart was thumping, and his spit went dry. He stood up from his seat, not sure of what he would do, and the owner of the restaurant got up from the back and walked towards the Olympic champion. Cassius thought for a moment he might throw a right cross at the man's fat stomach, then a left hook across his jaw, then an uppercut, and watch as the fat bastard flopped to the ground but he didn't do any of that. He then thought he might say something. Quote, "'This is supposed to be the land of the brave "'and the home of the free, "'and you're disgracing it with your actions. "'You all know me. "'I was born in General Hospital, only a block away. "'I was raised here. "'I went to Central High, "'and now I've brought back an Olympic gold medal "'for all the people of Louisville. "'I fought for the glory of my country, "'and you should be ashamed of what you're doing. "'You serve any foreigner here, "'but not an American Negro citizen. "'You'll have to take me to jail.' because I will stay until I get my rights. You should all be ashamed. End quote. But he didn't say any of that. It was all in his head. The words wouldn't come out, and instead of making them feel ashamed, he felt shame. Shamed, shocked, and lonesome. By now, the motorcycle gang had congregated behind the restaurant owner, and Ronnie moved his hand to his pocket where he kept a pearl-handled switchblade and began whispering to the champion about which ones each of them would take first. But for Cassius, the pain that he was experiencing couldn't be sated with a bar brawl. In his own words, whatever illusions he had built up as the all-American boy were gone, the Olympic honeymoon was over, and he was back in Kentucky. He was truly back home. Cassius and Ronnie slowly backed away towards the door of the restaurant. The owner and the gang members lit up a few cigarettes and chuckled to themselves as the tension de-escalated. But before Cassius could leave, the old black lady from the kitchen grabbed his arm and said, Son, don't lose the faith. And she handed him a book that she was holding, a volume of Langston Hughes poetry. But the moment was suddenly interrupted when the restaurant owner ordered her back to the kitchen. As Ronnie and Cassius walked across the parking lot, the waitress and another young white kid chased after them, waving a couple of menus, begging for the Olympic champ's autograph. Cassius quickly scribbled his name on the menus, and the pair darted off with their prize but soon the entire motorcycle gang had congregated outside, making their way to their hogs. Their leader, a man named Frog, said, Hey Olympic, you still trying to get a milkshake? As he made a crude gesture between his legs and shouted again, I got your milkshake. The gang started their hogs with a huge roar that shook the very ground. And one of the bikers, a man named Slim, rolled over to Cassius and Ronnie, who by this time were on their bikes, and said that they had made Frog real mad, and that he had a mind to lynch them right there in the restaurant but that he would take a souvenir instead. Cassius and Ronnie knew exactly what he meant. Ronnie shouted back, We fresh out of souvenirs. But Slim put a finer point on it, saying, Just give him the ribbon and the medal for his girl. But Ronnie replied, Tell him we'll give it to his mother. Cassius then, eager to get away, said, We'll see you later, Slim. And he rode away from the parking lot with Ronnie close behind. And Slim shouted as they rolled away, Frog gonna kill you for that. Ronnie and Cassius heard the hogs roaring around the block coming after them, and Cassius told Ronnie to follow him. They rolled across a vacant lot, then through a side street, down an alley, and through even more narrow and forgotten cut-throughs. The wind picked up, and the rain began pouring down hard. Cassius was glad Ronnie was there. He wasn't a boxer, but he was a street fighter. And finally, they reached the Jefferson County Bridge. The plan was to cross the Ohio River into Indiana and lose the gang before quietly slipping back into Kentucky but Frog had anticipated the champ's plan and was suddenly on his six and coming up fast. The rest of the gang must have gone looking elsewhere, because it was just Frog with his girlfriend holding on to him and Slim riding behind them. Ronnie shouted, They want you the most. I'll drop back and you keep going. Cassius gave his little motorbike everything he had as he raced across the bridge. And as Ronnie began falling back, Frog ignored him and he called to Cassius, Hey Olympic so you're a fighter? And then suddenly Ronnie leapt off his bike and he thrust it in front of the wheels of Frog. And as Ronnie tumbled to the ground, Frog lost control of his bike and cut left and fell to the pavement, skidding across the road until slamming to a stop against a bridge column. Frog's girlfriend got up screaming and bleeding and her blouse was ripped to shreds. She tried to help Frog up, but he was dazed. Slim then pulled up next to Cassius and began whipping a chain at his head. But instead of slashing his face, it wrapped around Cassius' shoulders. And Cassius instinctually grabbed the chain and pulled with all his might, yanking Slim off of his hog and clashing both bikes together. And in split seconds, as the two were crashing, Slim suddenly found his face within striking distance of the light heavyweight gold medal boxing champion, and Cassius took the opportunity and smashed his fist into Slim's face. Blood squirted from his nose and the pair crashed to the ground. Quote, Ronnie had a half-Nelson around Frog's neck, choking him, his blotched face even more distorted by the veins popping from his temples. The switchblade was pressed against his throat. Get back. I'll cut his goddamn neck off. Get back. He started ripping Frog's leather jacket as though it was tissue paper. Two other riders were coming up. One, I remember, with a flaming red polka-dot neckpiece and a World War II German helmet. I shouted to the girl, Tell him to stay off the bridge. Get him off the bridge. And she sprang up, flew down to the end of the bridge, waving her arms, Y'all go back. Y'all go back. They consulted briefly, looked up at us, and then slowly retreated down the street. I didn't move. I just watched until I heard the girl crying. They gone now. What you gonna do with us? Ronnie released Frog and let him crawl over to his wheel. Like a hunter who has chased what he thought would be a bunny rabbit, only to corner it and discover it to be a tiger. Frog's single thought was now of escape. His girl struggled to help him mount the hog, but he kept slipping off. And I stood there, looking at them feeling no anger or pity or hatred, just tension. Neither of them could ever make the hog go without our help. I moved over to the girl, and she cringed as though she expected me to hit her. Help us get off. She spoke, very low and desperate. We ain't coming back, honest. We'll keep going. I straightened the bent fender so they wouldn't rub against the wheels and fixed Frolic's fingers on the handlebars. He was weak, unsteady, and coughing as though his throat was still in Ronnie's grip. His blood oozing through the shredded slits Ronnie's blade had made with his jacket soaked all the way up to my t-shirt as I helped him. Ronnie and I held the hog on each side, steady enough to run it down an incline and give it a mighty push. The electric starter was shot, but the hog sputtered, caught, and slowly moved off, swaying a little. And we watched to see if Frog would regroup with the gang. But what the girl had said was true. Frog rode by them, and they all fell in behind. And we stood there until they disappeared. Until all we could hear was the rain and the shuffle and rattle of trains on the Kentucky side. End quote. Ronnie and Cassius went down to the river to wash themselves off. The red, white, and blue ribbons of his gold medal were covered in frog's blood. Ronnie grabbed the medal and washed it before he washed himself. This was the first time the medal had been off the champ's chest. And Cassius just looked at it. And for the first time, it meant nothing to him. It was just an ordinary object. Its magic was gone. Ronnie lovingly hung the medal back around the champ's neck, and they went back up to the bridge to get their bikes. Cassius Clay walked to the center of the bridge. He stared out at the black water of the Ohio. He thought that the middle was probably the deepest part. Ronnie's sixth sense, a sixth sense that can only come from knowing somebody your entire life, caught hold of him. And he knew what Cassius was about to do, and he dropped his bike and began yelling and screaming as he sprinted towards Cassius. But before he could reach his friend... Cassius had ripped the red, white, and blue ribbon from around his neck and cast it into the river. And he watched as the medallion pulled the ribbon deep into the abyss. Ronnie shouted, "'Oh, my God! Oh, my God! Do you know what you did?' And tears were streaming down Ronnie's face. Quote, "'How could I put the answer together? I wasn't sure of all the reasons. The Olympic medal had been the most precious thing that had ever come to me. I worshipped it. It was proof of performance.' status, a symbol of belonging, of my being part of a team, country, a world. It was my way of redeeming myself with my teachers and my schoolmates at Central High, of letting them know that although I had not won scholastic victories, there was something inside of me capable of victory. How could I explain to Ronnie I wanted something that meant more than that, something that was as proud of me as I would be of it. It had taken six years of blood, blows, pain, sweat, struggle, and a thousand rounds in rings and gyms to win that medal, a prize I had dreamed of holding since I was a child. Now I had thrown it in the river, and I felt no pain and no regret, only relief and a new strength. I felt as sure as day and night that I would one day be the world heavyweight champion. But my Olympic honeymoon as a white hope had ended, and it was not a change I wanted to tell the world about yet. I would be a champion my own kind of champion. End quote. Later that evening, as Cassius pulled himself together and reflected on the insane day he just had, he pulled out that Langston Hughes book given to him by the old black lady, and he opened it to a page she had marked and a line she had underscored. Quote, I, too, sing America. I am the darker brother. They send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes, but I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow, I'll be at the table when company comes. Nobody will dare say to me eat in the kitchen then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful I am, and be ashamed. I, too, am America. Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr. was born January 17, 1942, in Louisville, Kentucky, but the world would become endeared to him as Muhammad Ali, Ali was born, like so many others of the time, into a world segregated. Ali's mother, who he called Bird, distinctly remembered walking downtown on a hot summer day with her little boy as he cried and screamed for water. Out of desperation, she took him into a local Five and Dime and asked if she could get a glass of water for her son, and the clerk reminded them that they cannot serve Negroes. The store guard escorted them out, and Bird's little boy cried all the way home. Both of Muhammad Ali's parents remembered their son hearing about various racial injustices against black people in the news, and each story brought an unexpected amount of pain to their son. He often cried himself to sleep with these stories playing out in his head, probably fearing that someday he would be the victim of some terrible crime. The story of Emmett Till, who was about the same age as Ali, hit him particularly hard. Emmett Till was a 14-year-old black kid visiting Mississippi from Chicago who was accused of making advances on a 21-year-old white woman. A few days later, a group of men broke into the house where Till was staying. They abducted him, beat him, and shot him in the head, and tossed his lifeless body into a river, a 14-year-old. The woman, the alleged victim, years later admitted she made the whole thing up. Ali learned a great deal of patience, discipline, art, and beauty from his father, He was a sign painter by trade, but his talent was desired by the local Louisville churches too. Quote, I see the signs dad has painted. Signs on billboards, on cleaners trucks, on bakery trucks, on taverns, and above factories. Once dad painted a picture of Moses on Mount Sinai. It was so striking that other churches started calling for services. And I'd stay up all night in churches, watching him paint murals on the wall about John the Baptist, the Lord's Supper, the Holy Angels, the Virgin Mary, his crucifixion made you cry. End quote. Though his father saw talent in his son, he knew he wasn't destined to be a sign painter. He told his son that he would end up being a lawyer or a teacher, but after seeing him in the boxing ring for the first time, he began saying that his boy was going to be the next heavyweight champion of the world. And boxing entered Muhammad Ali's life when, at 12, his bike was stolen. And angry and almost to the point of tears, he was directed to file a report with the nearest police officer, who also happened to run a small-time boxing gym. The officer's name was Joe Martin, and he took the kid's report and then handed him an application to box at the gym. That weekend, on the family TV, Ali happened to be watching a local program called Tomorrow's Champions that featured amateur boxers from the area. And there, at the side of the ring, working with the boxers was Officer Joe Martin. And Martin was impressed by Ali, who was 12, by the way. And so he put him on TV for his first amateur fight, and Muhammad Ali won by split decision. But Ali soon noticed that all of Martin's fighters, including himself, were consistently getting beaten by a group of black boxers under the tutelage of a man named Fred Stoner. And Stoner's guys threw wicked counterpunches, and they had better timing and better rhythm. Muhammad Ali approached Stoner at his gym, which was woefully inadequate compared to Martin's. It was colder, in a church basement, and the equipment was worn and old. And Stoner recognized the kid from TV, but he was unimpressed. Quote, You got the will, but you don't have the skill. We train here at night from 8 to 12 o'clock. If you can get here, I'll show you how to fight. End quote. But Joe Martin didn't let any of Stoner's black boxers on his show, and he gave Ali an ultimatum it's him or Stoner. And at first, Ali chose Martin since he actually made a little bit of money from the TV appearances. Quotes. But that year, Fred Stoner's boys went to Chicago and brought back most of the amateur titles. They were beautiful fighters, boxers. They had sharp hooks and they danced. They could jab, hit, move. They had pretty footwork. They could duck and weave. Some were even younger than I was, but their bodies looked mature. How did they get their bodies that way? I had to find out. And Muhammad Ali, in the end, abandoned the steady cash so he could learn how to box. The discipline in Fred's gym was tough. Roadwork was like religion, and Fred was relentless in making me develop certain muscles which he believed were necessary for survival in the ring. He made us shoot left jabs, 200 straight, sharp left jabs at a time without stopping. And if we got tired, he made us start all over again and count to a 100. One, two, three, shooting jabs until we could do 200 without feeling it. Then he made us shoot and jab and a right cross. Then come back with a hook, jab, left hook, a duck, a jab, back up, jab, and move forward. He taught us how to block, to shoot right crosses, and we went over it again and again. We did a hundred push-ups and a hundred knee bends. In Martin's gym, all that was required was to punch the bag, jump ropes and jump in the ring and flail away at each other. All the publicity of my boxing origin and the early development of my boxing skill describes Joe Martin as the incubator, but my style, my stamina, my system were molded down in the basement of a church in East End. End quote. As Muhammad Ali watched other boxers around him, he soon began to see their weaknesses, even among the professionals of the day. And so he used what he learned to develop his own unique style, a style that not many in the gym quite understood. Quote, Professionals all around the gym tell me, someday you're going to get your head knocked off. But the wiser ones remember that Jack Johnson also leaned back. Soon I developed a built-in radar. I know how far I can go back. And when it's time to duck, or time to tie my man up, I learned there's a science to making your opponent wear down. I learned to put my head within hitting range and force my opponent to throw blows, then lean back away, keeping eyes wide open so I can see everything. Then sidestep, move to the right or to the left, jab him again, then again put my head back in hitting range. It takes a lot out of a fighter to throw a punch that lands in thin air, and when his best combinations hit nothing but space, it saps him." In his amateur boxing career, Ali won 161 of 167 fights. And finally, Fred Stoner approached his younger boxer and told him that when the Olympics come around in Rome, he wants Ali to compete, because he knew that Ali was going to win a gold medal. After the Olympics, Ali wanted to go pro. He wanted to be the world heavyweight champion, and so he sought a trainer by the name of Angelo Dundee. Dundee, to see what Ali was made of, let him spar one of his pros for two rounds. And Ali rained down fury on the pro, and Angelo, seeing his money being beaten out of his pro by the young Ali, he rushed to stop the fight. Angelo grabbed his man from the ring and yelled that he needs to spar with somebody else. And Ali asked him, who? Anybody but you, he said. Not only was Muhammad Ali a gifted fighter, but he was also a gifted marketer. Everywhere he went, he chanted poems that he wrote himself about his own greatness and about how he couldn't be beat. Often, he would predict exactly which round his opponents would fall in and then deliver on his predictions. The newspapers couldn't ignore him. This 22-year-old kid was a walking headline. And soon he set his eyes on the thing he desired most since he started boxing, even more than the Olympic gold medal, the World Heavyweight Championship title. But to get it, this kid had to beat Sonny Liston. Liston grew up hard. His father beat him as a little boy, and once set loose on the streets, he made his living through muggings and armed robberies. Ali taunted him. He called him the Big Ugly Bear. And after Ollie's fights, every time the reporters asked him who's next, I want Liston, he shouted. Finally, after all the bragging and taunting, and after destroying everyone who came against him, Ollie received a message from Liston's crew. The big ugly bear was ready to fight the kid. Quote, and he's got a message for you. He says to please drink your orange juice and your milkshakes. And to stay well and healthy. You talked yourself into a heavyweight title fight. Now your wife can be a rich widow. End quote. At the moment, Muhammad Ali had become a rather infamous public figure. After the Olympics, he joined the Nation of Islam, becoming a member of the black Muslims. And it wasn't long before Malcolm X began attending his fights. Now, all of Ali's fights were supercharged with politics, religion, and racial identity. Death threats, bomb threats, and assassination threats became the norm for Muhammad Ali. But he didn't care. All he wanted was to get Liston in the ring. After the fight was announced, Ali ramped up his taunts, and he stalked Liston, and he found him at a Vegas blackjack table. But before Ali could finish his latest prepared poetry, Liston pulled out a pistol and pointed it straight at Ali's head and pulled the trigger, and a bang rang through the casino. Ali ducked and dodged as the shots kept coming, bang, bang, bang. Once in the safety of his hotel room, he found out that it had all been a gag, that the gun was loaded with blanks. But Ali decided to get Liston back. And so one night he called the police and he told them that Cassius Clay was breaking into Sonny Liston's house. And so he sped his travel bus over to the Liston mansion and he began honking on the bus horn. All the neighbors opened their windows to see what all the fuss was. Liston came out in his pajamas with a fire poker. Just then the police and the news media pulled up in time for them to hear Muhammad Ali shouting from his bus, calling him a big ugly bear, a chump, and telling him he's going to fall in eight. And the last thing anybody heard as Ali's bus sped off was him shouting, I am the greatest the newspapers ate it up, but despite all the taunting leading up to the fight, Liston was heavily favored to win. With all the death threats Ali had gotten, he took no chances in the dressing room before the fight. Most of all, he had people watching his water bottles. Each one was sealed shut, wrapped in tape. After all, it was only a few months earlier when a fighter had been given a doped orange before a fight, and Ali was the most hated man in boxing. The bell rings, and Liston comes at Ali for the kill immediately. His punches are wild and terrifying. Ali leans back, swivels, and dodging every single one. Halfway through the round, Ali stung him with a right cross. When the first round ends, Ali had sized up his opponent, and he knew Liston was going to lose the fight. Sonny Liston had never been cut before in his career, but by round three, his face was swollen and bleeding. But in round five, Ali's eyes began burning so intensely that he couldn't see. He later found out that an ointment used on Liston's shoulder had rubbed off on Ollie's face. And although theories of foul play persist, no one knows if it was intentional or not. And Through the round, Ollie ducked and weaved, waiting and hoping that his eyes would clear up. And they did. Round six, Ollie comes out, jabs, 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 snapping Liston's neck back. And then when the bell rings for round seven, Ollie gets up from his corner. But Liston doesn't. He just sits there, staring at Ali. The towel was thrown in, and like that, the world had a new heavyweight champion.
2: Hold it! He's yelling behind us. Just say, come here! Come here! Come here! Come here! I'm the greatest thing that ever lived! No. I don't have a mark on my face, yes. and I am upset Sonny Listen, and I just turned 22 years old. I must be the greatest. Right. The I world. told the world I talk to God every day. If God's with me, came out of me against me, Sonny. I shut that. Uh, the world. Uh, I know God. I know the real God. Cassius, wait a minute, wait a minute, Cassius. Yes. Let me ask you this now. You told me when you visited in Los Angeles you could do it in eight. Well, you thought Sonny and figured Sonny was great. How I come had, you did it in six or seven? I, 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 you did it in I, seven. I had, I had him going in eight. I was getting ready to take him in the eighth, as you can see, but the man stopped it just to keep from making me look so great. Right. I say, now give us that poetry on number seven. He wanted to go to heaven, so I took him in seven. You took him in seven. I am the king of the world. Hold it, hold it, I'm hold pretty. it. Hold it, you're not that pretty. I'm great. a bad man. man. Wait, wait, me. I shook up the world. I shook up the world. I shook up the world.
0: Ali's long awaited list and match almost never happened. The promoter threatened to call off the fight if Muhammad Ali didn't reject his Muslim religion and his association with the Nation of Islam. Ali refused, and in the end he called the promoter's bluff. But Sonny Liston wanted a rematch. He wanted the title back, and his supporters didn't like the anticlimactic way the fight ended, with Liston slumped and dejected in the corner. Between the two fights, as Ali was training for his Liston rematch, on February 19, 1965, Malcolm X is shot dead with a pair of semi-automatic pistols and a sawed-off shotgun. The hit was alleged by most to be ordered by the Nation of Islam. With the assassination of Malcolm X, the heavyweight champion was now the most famous Muslim in the world. The death threats pour in, so much so that the FBI shows up and informs Ali that they'll be escorting him everywhere he goes. On May 25, 1965, in Lewiston, Maine, the bell for the rematch rings. Ali comes out, dancing like a butterfly and ready to sting like a bee, and he flutters from his corner and begins circling the big ugly bear. Ali jabs left and dances back. He moves in and stings Liston with another left. Liston throws a hard right, but Ali blocks it and bounces back. Liston misses again. Ali hits and dances, again and again. Liston approaches Ali off balance, and Ali slides in a hard right that smashes into Liston's jaw, crumbling him to the ground. Everyone is shocked, including Ali. It's only the first round, and as the ref begins the knockout count, Ali walks over to Liston on the ground, and the cameras flash like crazy, capturing one of the most iconic photographs in history. And Ali leans over the dazed Liston, and he says, quote, Get up off that floor, sonny. This thing ain't even started yet. End quote. It came to be called the Phantom Punch, because it's hard to see, but if you watch it in slow-mo, it's there. And immediately, people began calling for a fix, but Ali knew better. He saw the days in Liston's eyes. He had entered the half-dream room, a place no one had put Liston before. Three months ago, the
2: 1st
1: Air Cavalry Division shipped out from Charleston, South Carolina. Young men trained in a new concept of war. Proud, sure of themselves, but still to be tested in battle. They were destined for the high country of central Vietnam. Last week, some of them came home. It was clear that the enemy had been hurt badly, but we had paid dearly. It was almost like looking at old newsreels of Korea and the Pacific War. The same young old faces, the same shattered landscape, the same agony. It was pretty bad.
0: We kind of walked right into a ambush. And uh, we hit the hit the ground.
2: Try to look around for trees. There's elephant grass out there about
0: three foot high. And to look over that, uh, snappers could pick you up real easily and let you have it. Does it uh, frighten you now to think about it? Yes, it does.
1: Yeah, it it was pretty bad to listen to your friends crying out for help, not being able to do a thing. We just couldn't do anything. We were all pinned down. The Secretary of the Army has asked me to express his deep regret that your husband, Jack E. Gell, died in Vietnam on 14 November, 1965.
0: He told me, he said, honey, we've already heard them say that they will bury us and if they take over one little country at a time, before you
3: know it, all the little countries will be taken over. And eventually we would
0: be left alone and we couldn't take them. And he said, I'd rather go now than have to wait until 20 years and have my son go because it might be too late in 20 years. training for another fight in Miami, in February of 1966, news broke that the draft board had just promoted Ali from 1Y status to 1A, making him eligible immediately for induction into the military and inevitably sent for war in Vietnam. Of course, reporters knew Ali would say something, he always did, and so they asked him what his opinion was of this new war, and he gave it to them, quote, I ain't got no quarrel with the Viet Cong. Later, when they kept asking the same question, I rhymed it for them. Keep asking me, no matter how long. On the war in Vietnam, I sing this song. I ain't got no quarrel with the Viet Cong. End quote. The media exploded. Every living room in America, which at this point was still very much in favor of the war, was abuzz with the story of the day. Muhammad Ali is refusing to serve in Vietnam. For the parents of anyone who's bravely signed up, this hits them like a slap in the face. And for those who already hated this loudmouthed, braggadocious member of the Nation of Islam, this fueled their hatred. Then his phone started ringing with renewed threats against his life that he was already well accustomed to. But soon, other calls started coming in, followed by letters from people who quietly supported his position. And he discovered that there was a growing yet... For the moment, silent resistance to the war. Ali described it as discovering a whole new world that he had no idea existed. People who've never before cared about boxing now had a newfound hero to call their own. Someone who represented them on the world stage. Even Bertrand Russell called him up to congratulate him on his stance. And the two became fast friends and pen pals. Quote, In the coming months, there is no doubt that the men who rule Washington will try to damage you in every way open to them. But I am sure you know that you spoke for your people. And for the oppressed everywhere in the courageous defiance of American power, they will try to break you, because you are a symbol of a force they are unable to destroy, namely the aroused consciousness of a whole people determined to no longer be butchered and debased with fear and oppression. You have my wholehearted support. Call me when you come to England. Sincerely yours, Bertrand Russell. End quote. Ali recollects that had he been drafted prior to the Olympics, he would have gone overseas without a word. But since then, he had been awakened to a sense of injustice that had long been swept under the rug of American consciousness. Quote, As early as I can remember, I noticed the difference in the way black people and white people lived. Louisville was a segregated, racist town. The smell of the old slave south hung as heavy as the smell of the famous whiskey and horses and it hung over my white Christian millionaire sponsors. As nice as they tried to be to me, many of their actions reminded me that they were part of a system I wanted to escape from. End quote. A Georgia lawyer who was famous for his Fire Your N***er Week campaign started a new one called Draft That N***er Clay. Ali's millionaire sponsors promised him nothing would come of his draft eligibility. Plenty of athletes have had their drafts deferred, and his would be no different so long as he recanted his position on the war. One day, Muhammad Ali opened a magazine that showed some of the mangled, bloody bodies of dead Vietnamese laid out on a highway in rows. An American officer was walking by, noting them, getting the body count. A little naked Vietnamese girl with wide, frightened eyes was searching among the bodies. Quote, Children are a special love in the life of a heavyweight champion. They have a way of making him know what love is. In the days when my exile seemed permanent, children would flock around me, calling out, Champ, Champ. They tore up the isolation that was meant for me. Of all the glories of being the world heavyweight champion, the greatest was the recognition and acceptance by children everywhere I went. Ali Ollie was used to children shadowing him as he trained and jogged in the cities. But on one of these days, it took a while before he saw any kids. Finally, he found a group of them throwing bottles and rocks at three other kids who looked terrified. Ali grabbed one of the kids by the collar and asked him what was going on, and the kids said they were just playing. They are the Viet Cong, and we are the Americans. But suddenly, the kids recognized who he was and stopped their game to crowd around the champ. Mohammed went over to one of the Viet Cong kids, and he found the rattiest in the bunch, who looked the most frightened, a little girl named Patricia Ward, and he picked her up and put her on his shoulders. One of the boys said, but Champ, she's a Viet Cong. Ain't we against them? The girl had big eyes and reminded him of the girl that he saw in the magazine. Ali looked at the group of kids and he said, no, we ain't got nothing against the Viet Cong. And the children stopped playing their game once they found out that the world heavyweight champion didn't go along with it. From then on, when reporters and politicians pressed Ali, he repeated that he would not go to war. Quote, I felt I had an urge to declare even more strongly why I felt the war was unjust and why I would not let myself be used to help it in any way. Those who were denouncing me so bitterly had never said a single word against the injustices or oppressions inflicted upon my people in America. I felt they were saying they would accept me as the world heavyweight champion only on their terms. Only if I played the role of the dumb brute athlete who chimed in with whatever the establishment thought at the moment, even if it was against the best interests of my people or my country. End quote.
2: I'm saying you talking about me about some draft and all of you white boys are breaking your neck to get to Switzerland and Canada and London. I'm not gonna help nobody get something my Negroes don't have. If I'm gonna die, I'll die now, right here fighting you. If I'm gonna die. You my enemy. My name is a white people, not Congs, or Chinese or Japanese. You my opposer when I want freedom. You my opposer when I want justice. You my opposer when I want equality. You won't even stand up for me in America for my religious beliefs, and you want me to go somewhere and fight, but you won't even stand up for me here at
0: home. Ali's lawyer reminded him that he was destined for jail if he continued down this path. The choice is yours, and yours alone, he told him. When the Illinois Boxing Commission called Ali before them to correct and apologize for his unpatriotic remarks about the vietnam war he replied quote, no i do not apologize for what i said i do not apologize the commissioners were startled they looked down at my lawyer then over at the promoter bentley and one of them began again cassius clay he said i cut in and corrected him the name is muhammad ali quote. shortly after the boy who was cassius clay returned from the olympics with stars in his eyes He happened to be walking down the road and passed by a mosque. A black man standing outside invited the young gold medalist in, and what Ali heard was like nothing he had heard in his Baptist upbringing. The nation of Islam was preaching not only the teachings of a strange new faith to him, but preaching also a unique brand of racial pride. Once fully converted to Islam, Cassius Clay dropped his birth name. The Clay surname had come to him from his antebellum slave owner ancestors. From then on, He insisted on being called the name by which the world knows him today. The World Boxing Association title was stripped from Ali for his unpatriotic position and association with the Nation of Islam. It was given to Ernie Terrell, a tall, hard-hitting man whose long arms had a three-inch advantage over Ali. Terrell had beaten all of Ali's opponents and was undefeated for five years. And Ali wanted a shot at Terrell. He wanted his title back. At a pre-fight interview between the two men, with Howard Cosell mediating, Terrell was strangely insistent on calling Ali by his former name.
2: I'd like to say something right here, you know, Cassius is clay, yes. Why do you want to say Cassius clay when Howard yes. Cosell and everybody is calling you Muhammad Ali? Then why you got to be the one of all people whose color to keep saying Cassius is clay? Uh, Howard Cosell is not the one who's going to fight you. I am. <laughs> you uh, make it really you... hard on yourself now. Well, Why don't you keep the thing in the sport angle? Why don't you call me my name, man? Well, what's your name? You told me your name was Cassius Clay a few never years ago. I told you my name was Cassius Clay. Well, um, my name is Muhammad Ali, and you will announce it right there in the center of that ring after the fight if you don't do it now. For the benefit of this broadcast, him. All
1: right? You uh, just
2: acting just like an old Uncle Tom. Another fly Patterson. So, so, I'm going to punish you. Man. You ain't got no back off me, me no, Don't back call me no Uncle Tom. Man. That's what you are, Uncle Tom. Why are you gonna call me Uncle Tom? You, gonna, you, you heard no me. me no Just Uncle back Tom. off of me. And so, ladies and Uncle gentlemen, Tom? as the two contestants prepare for battle Wait, right now, back off of me, man. Back off of me, man. Another
1: interview has been recorded for posterity.
0: And punish him, he did. Ali dominated Terrell. Towards the end of the fight, in between punches, Ali would shout at him. What's my name, Uncle Tom? What's my name? What's my name? And Ali won the fight by unanimous decision. Muhammad Ali had finally received his letter from the President of the United States on April Fool's Day, 1967. He was to report for duty in Houston, Texas at the local board of transfer where he would be inducted into the United States military. The Houston board was dead set on inducting Ali. He was to be made an example of. But, like others, he had filed for a religious exemption, saying that taking up arms was against his religion, and it was immediately rejected. And so Ali and his attorneys pull up to the U.S. Customs House, where the induction board awaits him. There's a huge crowd of people, and they're waving signs and hollering, ''Don't go! Don't go! Stay home!'' And a group of hippie draft dodgers is shouting, ''We don't go! You don't go!'' Reporters are going wild, shouting at Ali, ''Are you going? Are you going? What's your decision?'' A naval officer approaches Ali. Right this way, Mr. Clay, he says. He leads him to a large room where there are other young men about to be inducted. Ali falls in line, and everyone is looking at him. One kid next to Ali is so nervous that his teeth are chattering. An officer approaches the group, and he tells them that there's going to be a written test and a physical test. Then they will be called for induction, after which they are to line up outside and load onto a bus for camp. Ali goes through the motions. He takes the written test and the physical examination and he remembers it being a humiliating experience with the doctor badgering him on why he doesn't want to fight for his country while inspecting his testicles for venereal disease. Then he goes back to the larger room of the other young men while they await induction, and he strikes up some playful conversations with them, but he also notices another young man in the corner with tears streaming down his face. The young man is being forced to leave behind a wife and four children, and soon the whole group is led down the hall to the induction room. The men line up before an induction officer, a man named Dunkley, sitting behind an oak podium. Another officer whispers something into Dunkley's ears, and his eyes meet Ali's for a moment. Other people begin silently crowding into the room, behind the men, ready to be inducted, and Dunkley clears his throat. Quote, "'Attention,' he says. We all straighten up somewhat, but the four in front of us are standing particularly erect. My palms are beginning to sweat. Dunkley glances quickly around the room before reading his prepared statement. He's probably read it hundreds of times before, but now there's special emphasis in his voice. He tries to make sure that each word is clear. You are about to be inducted into the Armed Forces of the United States, into the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, or the Marine Corps, as indicated by the service announced following your name when called. You will take one step forward, as your name and service are called, and such a step will constitute your induction into the Armed Forces indicated. He pauses, and even though everyone else is watching me, It seems like he and I are the only ones in the room. Jason Adams, Army. The first man steps across the line. John Allen, Navy. He, too, steps forward. And by the time the first row is finished, my throat is dry, and my head is starting to feel a little light. Leroy Bradlow, Army. Cold beads of perspiration break out across my forehead, and I feel lonely. Louis Serrato, Army. Cassius Clay, Army. The room is silent. I stand straight, unmoving. Out of the corner of my eye, I see one of the white boys nodding his head at me, and a thin smile flickers across the face of some of the blacks, as if they are secretly happy to see someone stand up against the power that is ordering them away from their homes and their families. The lieutenant stares at me a long while, then lowers his eyes. He calls out again, Cassius Clay, will you please step forward and be inducted into the Armed Forces of the United States? All is still. He looks around, helplessly. Finally, a senior officer with a notebook full of papers walks to the podium and confers with him for a few seconds, before coming over to me. He appears to be in his late forties, and his hair is streaked with gray, and he has a very dignified manner. Mr. Clay, he begins, then catching himself, or Mr. Ali, as you prefer to be called. Yes, sir. Would you please follow me to my office? I would like to speak privately with you for a few minutes, if you don't mind. It's more of an order than a request, but his voice is soft, and he speaks politely. I follow him to a pale green room with pictures of army generals on the walls, and he motions me to a chair, but I prefer to stand, and he pulls some papers from his notebook and suddenly drops his politeness, getting straight to the point. End quote. The officer tells Ali that if he refuses to step forward, he could face five years in prison, and that he is authorized to give him a second chance. Ali tells him that he knows full well what he is doing, and so the pair returns back to the induction room. And just then, someone hands Ali a note from his lawyer. He has an offer from a United States federal attorney that if Muhammad Ali submits himself to induction, he can serve most of his time in the Houston area. The champ crumples it up and shoves it in his pocket. Mr. Cassius Clay, the induction officer calls out again, will you please step forward and be inducted into the United States Army? Cassius Clay, he repeats again. Finally, the officer hands Ali a document to sign, stating that he refused induction, and Ali signs it and walks out. By the time it takes Muhammad Ali to get back to his hotel room, the World Boxing Association has once again stripped him of his title. Then, like dominoes, each of the 50 states begin revoking his boxing licenses. At his sentencing for refusing induction, the opposing attorney argued that if Cassius Clay is allowed to get away with not being inducted, then all black people will want to be Muslims and get out for the same reason. All right, Mohammed, now
3: let me just get a few facts straight with you. Uh, Is the position now, as I understand it to be, A, that they have taken your title away from you, that they've taken your passport, and that you've been sentenced to five years in jail for refusing the army draft?
2: Yes, sir, that is right.
3: Now, did you realize when you went into this, Mohammed, that that they would go as far as this, that it would be as serious as this for you?
2: Yes, sir. I realized everything before it happened, and it all happened just like I knew it would, just like I know when my opponents are going to fall in the rain. (laughs) And the only way I'm going to pay my court fees and the fees and expenses and debt that I'm in now is through boxing.
3: But how how are you in debt? You're a very successful young man
2: many people in debt, countries and nations in debt, so it's, it's possible for an individual athlete
3: to be in debt. But uh, this, yes indeed, but you have said you believe in the Muslim creed, uh, have you given your money to that? Is that how you're losing your money? My money all go to the government, they take 90% before I get it. They have a new law
2: just for me, my money is taken <laughs> before I get it.
1: Well, I don't know where to begin. You seem to be paying some kind of tribute to this chap. He is a convicted felon in the United States. He has broken its laws. He has been found guilty because of the great justice and system of jurisprudence we have. He is out on bail while superior courts ponder his fate. He will inevitably go to prison, as well he should. He is not funny. He's a disgrace to his country, his race, and what he laughingly describes as his profession. I find nothing amusing or interesting or tolerable about this man.
3: So you don't accept Muhammad's statement there now that he has nothing to do with <laughs> I violence? I feel
1: sorry for him because he's a simplistic fool and a pawn. And his outfit is attempting to make him a martyr and they will succeed. He's been such a, an amusing buffoon in England that he's won your hearts. You take more than one or two of our vipers to your bosom and I'd like to straighten it out he objected to being inducted into the armed forces after having a medical and an intelligence test which i think the first time around he flunked but then he succeeded in passing he then was ordered to be inducted he refused that
2: how did i pass the test when they didn't give me another test to pass i now, haven't seen a test the yet. the grounds
1: on which he objected you to keep service. talking
2: jive you'll fall in five <laughs> i wish i could get you in a boxing ring <laughs> and uh this is a whole religious thing i'm either crazy or sincere because i've now turned down some eight million two hundred thousand dollars in movies commercials advertisements heavyweight title fights and looking like it looks like i might spend five years in prison and i don't think that uh You can consider a man like me bad for being that strong in his religious beliefs because I don't have to do it. I can go either way. I won't. And I have chose this way. And I'm going to be a man. I'm not leaving the country as many of the people here are doing. I'm not uh, burning draft cards. I still have my draft card. I'm not uh, talking bad about the president. I'm not attacking the country. I'm not. I'm trying to leave the country. I've been near the coast of Canada three times in Detroit, Michigan. I'm not trying to run. I'm going to be a man and stay here and face the confinement and the suffering if I have to. I'm not I, burning I, statues of the president. I think he is I'm sincere. not burning draft no, there, There's a
1: point. To I'm,
3: just, I'm just sticking up for my religious beliefs, and this is all. David Susskind has just said, and I agree with him, but I feel he's going to add a sting on the I, tail. I, but he I believes. I think you're sincere, grotesquely
1: sincere. I think you're being used with your modest intelligence quotient as a pawn by some vicious men. He is not just not doing all the things he said he's not doing. He is also going all about the country, addressing groups at colleges wherever they will assemble. And they do assemble in large numbers, uh, black people, to hear him. And there he is used as a hero of a movement not to serve the country, not to respond to the draft, to defy the law and get away with it. And that's his current inspirational function in America. And it's evil, and it's bad, and I'm it's not, wrong. I'm
2: not. I'm not divine the law. I'm in the courts now. I've been in the courts. I have a case peeling now. I will face the judge face to face and accept whatever penalty he gives me, if any. So I'm not divine the law. I would say the people divine the law are the ones that may burn draft cards, or the money that may leave the country, or the ones that may run in the Pentagon and lay down on the steps, the ones that talk bad about. Uh, presidents, I'm not You can't get nothing on me of, like this I'm not defying the government I'm not defying the law I'm not breaking the law Mohammed, well, we've got to leave it there with?
3: I'm sorry, but our satellite's moving on uh, Thank you for joining us um, I hope there's a happy ending to your story Bye-bye satellite <laughs> <laughs> Thank Bye. you, sir well, I
2: enjoyed that? talking to you But we don't hate nobody We treat you like you treat me
3: <laughs> Thank oh, you, Mohammed it
2: over, because it's getting late <laughs> Well, that's. And tell David Susskind, I'll be waiting for him on the
0: shores when he come home. (laughs) Muhammad Ali and his lawyers prepare to appeal his case all the way to the United States Supreme Court. But all of this costs huge sums of money that he's not making because he can't fight. Over the next few years, in virtual boxing exile, promoters try to arrange fights but all fizzle up. Ali's primary source of income becomes his college tours where he would speak to throngs of students about his beliefs. By the end of his touring, he had spoken at over 90 colleges across the nation. But now my time is running out. The Supreme Court decision on my jail sentence is due to come down any time. My lawyers believe my chance of escaping jail is not good. And although I publicly say that I am unconcerned about ever fighting again, deep down, I want the chance to come back. To knock the pretenders off the throne, to prove that I could do what Joe Louis, Rocky Marciano, Ezra Charles, and Jack Dempsey, and all the great fighters could not do. Come back to the ring after a long layoff and beat the best fighters the world could put up against me. End quote.
2: Would you like to to be president? No. No? No, sir. Too dangerous. (laughs) Like, in other words, here's a ship. People are dancing on the ship, a lot of money is on the ship, a lot of food is on the ship, and I cannot integrate on the ship. I cannot have equality on the ship. I'm just in the galley working, and I never could get up and see the captain of the ship. Now, All of a sudden, the man tells me, uh, say, come on down, Ali, out of the galley. I want you to come up here and here, have something to drink. What do you want? And giving me number one spot from the galley to the number one spot. I said, this shit must be sinking. Why (laughs) Why is he so nice to me now? What moved him to call me up here? I'll tell you something. I don't think I've ever said this before, but I'll tell you. I really care nothing about boxing. Boxing is a stepping stone just to introduce me to the audience. Like, 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 uh, like, if I was still in Louisville, Kentucky and never was a boxer, I might get killed next week in some type of freedom struggle and you never read the news. But now, if I'm eating, say the wrong thing and make news. So, like, boxing is just to introduce me to the struggle. Like, when I speak, I draw people in the states to draw my people, to teach them various things, which to give them dignity, pride, and self-help, and go for self. I to get on, to help the dope prostitution problem, the juveniles, and I use my image to help or do all I can to stop a lot of trouble among our own people fighting and killing each other. So boxing is just going to be another year. But my main fight is for freedom and equality, and this is what I plan to do in boxing. Because right now, black people, when you show this show, are home jumping, home shouting, because they don't have the nerve to say what I'm saying, and nobody's never said it, and they're just so happy to see a black man who will stand up and jeopardize every court he's got to tell the truth. So, like... Floyd Patterson and other fighters—they just don't take part. They make a million dollars. They get them a Rolls-Royce. They get them a nice home. They get them a white wife. Well, I made it. America's great, and the rest of them catching hell. And he won't say nothing. But when one man of popularity can let the world know the problem, he can—he uh, might lose a few dollars himself telling the truth. Might lose his life, but he's helping millions. But if I kept my mouth shut just because I can make millions. And then this ain't doing nothing. So I just love the freedom and the flesh and blood of my people more so than I do the money. You can take a show sure and play it right in Washington, and let Nixon hear it, <laughs> right? and I'd be happier. <laughs> See, so I'm not ducking and running from nothing. And this boldness and telling the truth makes them just overshadow sports greatly. You couldn't get Joe Frazier no box on this show and get an interesting subject like this. Nothing to talk about. How do you feel, champ? I don't run
0: Ali and his second wife were preparing for the birth of another baby, they had lost their first son prematurely. Ali was terrified the stress of his court battles on his wife would cause another loss. He also began evaluating his finances more seriously now that his family was growing. He had an $80,000 retirement fund, but he had $100,000 in alimony that he owed to his first wife. He had $250,000 in legal fees from taking his draft case all the way to the Supreme Court, and he had $40,000 in back taxes. His formerly cushy lifestyle had also run him up in bills that he could no longer afford. And then one day, Muhammad Ali looks through the glass at the tiny little babies that lay before him. Needles, tubes, and masks cover their faces, and he asks the doctor how much they weigh. Two pounds, he's told. Their breathing is irregular. He asks the doctor if they have a chance. They have a chance, the doctor says. He tells the doctor that his boy was the same size, but he only lived for half an hour. Girls are stronger, the doctor tells him. How long before we'll know if they'll make it, he asks. The doctor lowers his tone. They need to get through the next 48 hours, he says, as long as they get stronger every day. I thought about my
2: children. I watched the baby cry another day. And I said, 10 years from now, I won't be fighting. 10 years from now, that baby will just be 10 years old. And I'll need money. He'll need school books. He'll need clothes, bus fare. And then 20 years from now, my daughter will need a house. She'll need a job. And it'll be shame to say, Muhammad Ali's daughter, a waitress in a restaurant. He made all of those millions. Oh, there's his son over there it's in here. What I'm trying to say, I can earn enough money in five years if I invest it and put it up right to take care of my grandchildren. Then I can relax and go to sleep and retire and don't have to worry about my children because this is a hard world. Don't nobody give you nothing. You have to work for it. So I'm just saving money now. I have three daughters and one son. Save all I can. So all I'm doing now, every month is saving at least 75% of my money for the future of my children. Putting it away
0: for 15 years, I don't want to touch it. I don't need it. Finally, as 1970 was drawing to a close, through various political machinations by money-hungry promoters and gubernatorial politicians, Atlanta, Georgia had arranged to host a Muhammad Ali fight, his first fight in three and a half years. Leading up to the fight, someone dropped off a package for Ali. The label read, Takashis Clay from Georgia. One of his handlers began tearing open the red and green ribbons, but quickly began shouting and cursing, and blood spilled to the floor. The package slipped from his hands awkwardly, and the little black body of a beheaded chihuahua fell out, still warm, a note inside the package read, quote, "We know how to handle black draft dodging dogs in Georgia. Stay out of Atlanta." End quote. The only signature was a Confederate flag. Later, at his training cabin in the early morning hours, bullets ripped through his home as Ollie and his trainers were waking up. And they hit the deck. Ollie's manager, Bundini, with a wild look in his eyes and tears streaming down his face, runs outside with his pistol and begins firing back. The phone rings, Ali answers it, and he's told he's going to be killed in the ring. The fighter lined up to be his first opponent in nearly four years with a young man named Jerry Quarry, and at the weigh-in, Ali describes the strange assortment of all the walks of life from the Deep South, and suddenly there's a commotion from the Quarry camp. Jerry is hollering about something, and finally, Ali's people realize he's upset about having black doctors in his corner of the ring, and he threatens to call off the fight, And Ali then looks over at the two doctors sent over by the Atlanta State Commission. Both are black. Quote, In my 14 years of fighting, from Chicago Stadium to Madison Square Garden, to the Houston Astrodome, to the Felt Forum, promoters have assigned only white doctors, even though most of the fighters are black or Latin or Asian. Now, the first black doctor Corey sees, he wants fired or he won't fight. Well, 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 I shout over the noise. We got soul doctors in the house for once. Welcome, brothers, welcome. And I clap my hands as the crowd joins in. I remember looking at Quarry then, as though I'm seeing him for the first time. I resolve that if the fight comes off, I will see to it that he needs a doctor, any doctor, bad. And while the cameras are clicking away, I whisper into Jerry's ear, this is just between you and me, Jerry. I don't want a soul to hear it. And he jerks back and stares at me. His eyes are inches from mine. They can see us talking, but they can't read my lips. Then I give it to them. You are going to get the worst damn whipping of your life. I'm going to whip you till you're cherry red. You insulted all those black doctors. And if you don't want black doctors who are here to help you, how you must hate black me, who is here to harm you. And harm you I will. End quote. Ali has sized up his enemy. He can be reached by not only gloves, but with words too. And he's armed with both.
2: Well, some of them I won't repeat, mm. but I have a few things to say to—not for the public, but to confuse my opponent. Mm. Like I might say to a white fighter, "Listen, while I'm in the clinch, the Black Panthers outside. <laughs> <laughs> you don't stand a damn chance tonight, boy. Now burn your house down." He looked at
0: me. This guy's crazy. <laughs> And after three and a half years of being banished from boxing, Ali put Jerry Quarry out in three rounds with a TKO. After Quarry, the boxing world was eager for its headline-producing champion to come back. And now, with the American public increasingly growing disgusted with the war in Vietnam, the fights begin lining up again. Before one of Ali's fights, he meets a man, a fan of his, named Judge Aaron. And with just Ali's inner circle in the room, the man strips down naked for a brief moment. His body is covered in wrinkly scars. His genitals have been crudely removed. His chest is engraved with three Ks. He was abducted by seven men, blindfolded, thrown in the trunk of a car, and nearly beaten to death. He took a drag of his cigarette as he retold his story, and he recounted how he pleaded to God for mercy as his assailants castrated him. They asked him if he likes white women as they removed his testicles. Then they took off their masks and ritualistically rubbed the man's bloody testicles on their foreheads, leaving blood smears. It was retaliation for Martin Luther King Jr. speaking in Alabama on that day. Ollie embraces the poor man and he sees his face light up at being hugged by the world heavyweight champion, the people's champion. And for a moment... Ali sees in the man's face the innocence that was once there. He has been in my room for less than an hour, but he has made me understand more of what I fight against and what I fight for and what I have come to mean to those who hate me most and to those who understand what I stand for. It is then that I decide to change the dedication of this fight and all future fights to the unprotected people, to the victims. I walk him to the door and I ask a question I'm curious about who gave you the name judge? My mother, he says. Did she ever tell you why? He nods slowly. She said she wanted me to be fair to people. Give justice, she said. Be like a good judge. Justice. Justice, Minister Jeremiah says. That's the greatest word there is, justice. No, judge answers slowly. My mother didn't say that. She said there was one word greater, what, Jeremiah asks. But the frowns are slowly coming back into his face, and the puzzled look returns to his eyes. He's staring across the room and listening to the commotion outside my door. What, Jeremiah persists. Mercy, Judge finally says. End quote. Finally, in March of 1971, with his case up before the Supreme Court, Ali faces who he considers the greatest boxer of all time, besides him. Joe Frazier. It's billed as the fight of the century. Both fighters were unbeaten to date, and the crowd at Madison Square Garden are on their feet. By round 15, the fighters are exhausted and bloody. Frazier's face looks broken and twisted, and Ali doesn't have much left in the gas tank. By the end of the fight, the judges determined that Frazier had landed more hits and gave Muhammad Ali his first loss of his professional career. Joe comes over to Ali's corner, And though he can barely see straight, he tells Ali that he put up a great fight. Ali tells him that he is now the champ. And for all the Ali haters in the country, it was a day they had so long awaited. And it's interesting to note that although Ali was relatively uninjured after the fight, Joe Frazier was laid up in a hospital bed for over six weeks. But another loss was pending, his case before the Supreme Court. Nobody expected the highest court in the land to overturn the convictions of the lower courts. It was just a matter of time before Ali was finally put in prison. And when I try to wrap my head around these four years of tension, I have a family who depend on me to provide. And though I've got a few thousand listeners with this small little history show, I'm far from a public figure. I'm certainly not the world heavyweight champion. I don't have throngs of people sending me hate mail or death threats. And I don't have swaths of the public who want to see me fail, miserably and catastrophically fail, to be beaten to a pulp on live TV, to see me locked up behind bars. I don't have the added moral weight of representing a disenfranchised and persecuted class of people. I can't wrap my head around the tension that must have been Muhammad Ali's life since he rejected service into the armed forces. And there's something else worth mentioning with this little aside that I'm on. It's a thing that attracted me to do an episode on Ali in the first place, and it's something that endeared America to him. It was his charm, his buoyancy, his remarkable ability to proclaim himself the greatest athlete who's ever lived, while at the same time, come across as the most relatable person you could ever hope to meet. With the prospects of going down in history as a national disgrace, and going to prison for five years, and likely losing his family and all of his money, he is still exactly who he wants to be.
3: How do you stand now with... um... The possibility of going to jail.
0: Oh, I don't know. I'm
2: just waiting at any day now.
3: Do you think of <laughs> Do you think about that, though? Do you ever think what you'll do? If you, well, yes, you, go? you
2: think about it at nights when you're in the bed. You think about, you know, if I went this way, what could have happened? If I went this way, and I've figured it all out. Uh, yeah. No people gain freedom until some have to die, some lose their wealth, some give up money. Uh, white America right now spending $30 million a day in Asia. Black and white boys are dying unjustly for nothing just to free somebody else. So why should I worry about going to little old jail to free my poor people who's been catching hell here for
0: 400 years? On June 28, 1971, the Supreme Court unanimously decided that Muhammad Ali was a free man that his beliefs were sincere, that the lower courts and the government draft agencies had failed to provide legitimate reasons for his conviction. Muhammad Ali had gone into the ring with the United States government. He went 15 hard bloody rounds, and the judges decided unanimously in his favor. The boxing world was now fully opened back up to Ali, but he was past his prime. He was now over 30, and every boxing promoter and trainer knows that this is when the reflexes begin slowing. The body just can't take the blows that it used to. This is when boxers begin retiring. But Ali wasn't even close to throwing in the towel. There was a new, young monster of a fighter in the game now. And his name was George Foreman. Now, I know some of you are probably thinking... George Foreman, the grill guy who's always so nice and smiling? First of all, yes, that George Foreman. And second, back in the early 1970s, George Foreman was a stone-faced and absolutely chiseled beast with one of the hardest-hitting punches in the boxing world. His walk and his swagger channeled Sonny Liston, someone Foreman emulated. When Foreman went up against Joe Frazier, the guy who went and beat Ali in 15 rounds, Foreman knocked down Frazier six times before the referee ended the bloodbath. After Foreman punished Frazier, he was now the undisputed and undefeated world heavyweight champion. Muhammad Ali wanted his title back, and he wanted to show the world that he could take it from George Foreman. Ali's training for a fight is all about discipline. It starts with his diet. No sugar whatsoever. He sticks to fresh vegetables, lamb, veal, fish, kosher chicken, or beef. For hydration, it's either distilled water or fresh fruit juice. Next, he chooses his sparring partners. Ali has watched all the footage of Foreman that he could get his hands on, and he'll choose fighters that fight like George. Quote, Going into this match is a business, and I've got to take it seriously. Everything I've built for myself and my family depends on it. I have to think about George. I have to concentrate on him so much that I can feel his presence around me. I shadow box with him. End quote. He begins his days jogging at 5 a.m. when it's still dark, and he starts with a mile and then adds a mile every day. His legs get stronger, his ankles get stronger, his heart gets stronger. Quote, This is the key for me. My defense depends on my legs. When I've lost, it was because my legs gave out. I couldn't dance. I couldn't jump out of my opponent's range. I got hit. Now, I run myself to exhaustion so that I have to go to the 15th round with George. I'll be ready. I'll be tired. I'll be winded, but I'll be used to working under that tiredness. I push myself on the road so that no matter how hard my fight is, I won't get as tired in the ring as I do out here running. End quote. And he trains like he fights in three-minute rounds. Then he rests for a minute. Quote, No shorter, no longer. Exactly a minute. This means a lot when I'm working myself into condition. I can be really tired after the fourth or fifth round, but if I'm in shape, all I need is one minute to get my wind back, to sit and breathe in and out as slow and as deep as possible. One minute will recuperate me. When I'm in condition, I use that minute for thinking. I check out my opponent, I look at him, and I see how he's feeling. I ask Angelo or Bundini if I'm winning. If they say yes, this makes me more confident. If they say the last round was close, this makes me fight harder the next round and be more cautious. That minute means a lot if you know how to take advantage of it. That stuff you see in the movies, about a trainer with a cigar in his mouth, shouting, Come on, boy, let's run four miles today. Don't stop. Keep going. And one of the boys at the gym telling the fighter, Jab, jab, slow up, hit him. And next time I want you to throw two uppercuts with the right hand. That's all real amateurish. Just a hustling trainer who's got a fighter he's using like an animal. Never mind what happens to him, as long as he can make a few dollars with him. And he's so desperate and money-hungry that he's trying to talk him into greatness. Champions aren't made in the gyms. Champions are made from something they have deep inside them. A desire, a dream, a vision. End quote. Next, Ali moves to the heavy bag. 200 pounds of resistance. Hitting it tightens his stomach. It trims his waist. It strengthens his wrists, his fists, and his knuckles. Then to the speed bag. Two shots with the left and two shots with the right. Over and over again. His eyes sharpen. His timing dials in. His arms strengthen. George Foreman throws the strongest punch in boxing, and Ali will need strong arms to protect his head. Then the jump rope. His heart thumps through the motions. His limbs loosen up. And after all these exercises, Ali goes into the ring with his sparring partners. He wants to get there at last. He wants to be drained and tired and exhausted. His stamina is gone, and he wants his body to be on the verge of giving up when he faces a fresh fighter. In sparring, Ali is all defense. He sees George's face in his sparring partner, and he analyzes his adversary. He studies him. He knows what punch he's going to throw before he even throws it. And finally, after defending blow after blow, Ali unleashes a left, then a right, then a hook and an uppercut. And all are on target and fast. Quote, By the time the fight is 10 days away, I'll be through with most of my physical training. Now I concentrate on my mental conditioning. If my body isn't ready by then, it'll be too late. I'll follow my plans up until three days before the fight, and then I'll start to loosen up and rest. Then I'll have to save up my energy so that I'll be at my strongest when the bell rings. I want my mind and my body to be working together. I'll be ready for anything George has to dish out, and I know what I throw will be too much for him to handle. That's the way a fighter prepares. End quote. The fight was arranged to take place in Zaire, Africa, and how the fight ended up in Africa... Could be a whole podcast episode in and of itself, but the long and short of it is Don King brought the two fighters to the table with a $5 million purse, but he needed investors willing to pay up that sort of money. None could be found in the United States, and so enter a group of third world money men, one of which was none other than Muammar Gaddafi. In the end, Ali was thrilled to be able to bring such a massive sporting event to Africa. and Before long, it was being promoted as the Rumble in the Jungle. Ali lands in Zaire on September 10, 1974. And the fight is originally scheduled for the 24th, but it's pushed back to October 30th due to Foreman receiving a cut from one of his sparring partners. In preparation for Foreman, Ali's team recruits a man named Bossman Jones. And Bossman was recently Foreman's sparring partner. He knows every punch George Foreman has. Ali's team interrogates Bossman, but Bossman tells them the last thing they want to hear. Foreman trains harder and he hits harder than Ali. He knocks everyone out. He's the first fighter, boss man, has ever been in the ring with who can kill you. And he tells Ali directly that he cannot beat George Foreman. Muhammad Ali is 32. George Foreman is 25. And by the day of the fight, Foreman is favored 4-1. to one. The Chicago Tribune reports that Ali will need a miracle to survive. As Ali and his trainer Bundini await at the doorway to the stadium, Bundini reads something, that he found in a magazine earlier that day before the fight. Quote, So it boils down to this. Foreman, Ali, $5 million each in a battle in Zaire, Africa. Forget everything else, every fight that has been won or lost before, and all of those that will be contested in years to come. Forget every battle of man against man, of mind against mind, of soul against soul. This is the one. This is the greatest. End quote Ali people out of the dressing room and all of the questions will be answered. This is an awesome bar of George Foreman against the Barley boxing skills of Muhammad Ali. Here they walk through Ali. the corridor and enter the stadium. Muhammad Ali hears the crowds. Ali, Ali, Bamae Ali. It means Ali, kill him. Muhammad Ali climbs into the ring and he dances and he flits from one end to the other, raising his hand towards the crowd. They go wild. Ali thinks Foreman is trying to make him sweat by not coming out right away. But Muhammad Ali was made to be the center of attention. He loves the people, and they love him. He is the people's champion, after all. The newsmen call it showmanship, but what they don't understand is Ali is using this time to get a sense of his surroundings from all angles. He's testing the ropes and their tension. He's feeling the heat of the lights. He will know more of the atmosphere than George by the time he comes out. Finally, the world heavyweight champion emerges, and the referee brings the fighters together. The crowd. Ali, Ali, Bamae Ali. And as Ali and Foreman look into each other's eyes, Ali sees shades of Liston, but a younger, tougher, taller, stronger Liston. Look at this now as they stare. Muhammad Ali beginning to talk to George
1: Foreman. They're really putting the stare on each other. George Foreman has that serious look. Ali
0: definitely talking to him. Look at Nonetheless... Ali throws the first psychological punch. Quote, I lean in close to George's ear, and since I obviously have his undivided attention, I think we should get a few things straight that the referee might overlook. Chump, I say, with all the contempt I can muster. You're going to get yourself beat tonight in front of all these Africans. The referee's head jerks up. Ali, no talking. Listen to the instructions. He goes on. No hitting below the belt. No kidney punches. Never mind all that stuff, sucker. I speak low. I'm going to hit you everywhere but under the bottom of your big, funky feet, chump. You got to go, sucker. Ollie, I warned you, the referee snaps. Be quiet. George bites his lip, and his eyes glare. Ref, I say, this sucker is in trouble. He ain't nobody's champ. George's eyes go from me to the referee. He wants Clayton to chastise me, but I pull his eyes back to mine. The referee talks on mechanically while I say to George, You heard about me for years, sucker. All your life, you've been hearing about Muhammad Ali. Now, chump, you gotta face me. Ali, I'm warning you for the last time. George's eyes are tight. His head is closer to mine. You've been hearing about how bad I am since you were a little kid with mess in your pants. Tonight, I'm gonna whip you till you cry like a baby. If you don't stop talking, I'll disqualify you. Clayton is furious. He shakes his hands. I want a good, clean, sportsmanlike fight, or I'll absolutely call it to a halt. That's the only way you're going to save this sucker, I say. He's doomed. Sweat is coming down George's forehead. Archie Moore is rubbing his shoulders. If you talk while fighting, the referee says, I'm going to stop this fight. You hear? I'll stop it. End quote. Ali knows the ref won't stop the fight over words. A billion people are watching. As the fighters move to their corners, Ali begins to think about what round he'll take his opponent to the half-dream room, the room where you go when a heavy hit lands. The door opens, and you see neon lights and bats blowing trumpets and alligators playing trombones. The first time a fighter goes there, he panics. But once you've been there a few times, you play it cool. Ali had been there before. Joe Frazier put him there. But George Foreman has never been put in that room by anyone. He's never been there before.
2: It is so devastating, the tremendous left hook going to stop Ali. Here we go, Ali, quickly across the
0: round. The bell rings for round one. George comes out swinging, and Ali starts his dancing and his jumping around the ring. But George was ready, and he cuts him off, and he closes the ring like no other opponent has done before. George corners Ali on the ropes, left, right, left, and then his haymaker. It slams into Ali hard, and his punch is exactly what people describe. It's lethal. And Bundini is shouting for Ali to dance. Dance, champ, dance. George Foreman has come prepared for this fight.
2: Here we go, round number 2.
0: The bell rings for round 2, and Ali knows he used way too much energy evading Foreman. At this rate, he would tire first, and it's exactly what Foreman wanted, to keep the butterfly dancing so that he tires out. So Ali puts himself into the corner, and George closes in and pummels him. Left, right, left. Ali's corner is going nuts. Get off the ropes, they scream. Dance, dance. Ali's arms are blocking tonners that he's never felt before in the ring. And then a right hand breaks through and smashes into Ali's head. And he enters the half dream room. And he reminds himself, I've been hit. I've been hit. But I've been here before. And more hits come to Ali. His ribs, his head, his kidneys are all taking a beating. Get off the ropes, champ, Bundini screams. Suddenly, just before the bell, Ali swings, bam, 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 straight jabs, and right crosses into Foreman's skull, and they all land.
2: (laughs) Tremendous combination by Muhammad Ali. It's a left hand and then it's straight right to the jaw. He's trying to do the damage with the left jab, the lightning clicking left, to the right eye of George Foreman.
0: We were able to observe a little bit of puffiness under the left eye of George Foreman, the left eye, not the right eye. Round three begins. George Foreman... Hasn't had to go past round three in five years. Ali knows that this is the round that Foreman will try to knock him out in. Ali hits him first and then goes back against the ropes. And he tells him, here I am. This is where you want me, George. And George moves in again, bombing Ali. Left, right, left, and then an uppercut that nearly knocks Ali off of his feet. The half-dream room again. But Ali's head clears up, and he delivers three quick jabs into George's face. And the crowd goes wild as if Ali had come back from the dead. And George is shaken by the resurrection. George throws a bomb, but it misses and wraps around Ali, bringing them into a clinch. And Ali whispers into George's ear, Is that the best you can do, sucker? The round ends, and the crowd chants even louder, Ali, Ali, Bamae Ali, all through rounds four, five, and six. Now, remember, Muhammad Ali had nothing against Foreman personally, but like countless athletes throughout history, Ali affixed a higher purpose to his fights. His fights wasn't against the human being in the opposite corner. It was against the injustice against his brothers, the forced segregation of his people, the racially charged violence and all the iniquities a poor black child born in the hopelessness of the American ghetto has to contend with. His fight went beyond the borders of America, too. It stretched into the heart of Vietnam. He was fighting the Warhawks, the Kennedys, the Johnsons, the Nixons. He was counterpunching those authors of an undeclared war whose purpose no one could articulate, and one in which the only measure of success was a body count of the enemy. He was ducking, dodging, and dancing around those nameless administrative cogs in the wheel of a soft totalitarian system that said, you must give up your life for our war, so fall in line and step forward when we call your name, to hell with your beliefs. This was his fight, this was his crusade, and this was his opponent in the ring. Better far from
2: all I see To die fighting to be free What more fitting in could be Better surely than in some bed Where in broken health I'm led lingering until I'm dead Better than with prayers and pleas Are in the clutch of some disease Wasting slowly by degrees Better than of heart attack are some dose of drug I lack Let me die by being black Better far that I should go Standing here against the foe Is the sweeter death to know Better than the bloody stain On some highway where I'm lame Torn by flying glass and pain Better calling death to come Than to die another dumb Muted victim in the slum Better than of this prison rot. If there's any choice I've got, kill me here on the spot. Better far my fight to wage, now while my blood boils with rage. Mess it cool with ancient age. Better volum for us to die than to uncle, tom, and try. Making peace just to live lie. Better now that I say my sooth, I'm gonna die demanding truth. While I'm still akin to youth Better now than later on Now that fear of death is gone Never mind another dog
0: The bell rings for round seven And Ali throws four punches into the heavyweight champ's head and Ollie notices his heavy breathing He measures it against his own. Foreman's punches are slowing down. They're losing steam, power, and aggression. Then a quick one, two, three, and Ali hits him in the eye. But George thunders forward like a tank. George throws a long, slow haymaker. Ali dodges it, and he counters. Bam, bam, bam. They go into the clinch. And now, after seven exhausting rounds, Ali whispers into George's ear, that all you got, George? And it's a moment Foreman will never forget. Both fighters go back to their corners before round eight begins. Ali is tired, but George, even more so. A tall African girl walks by the ring. She looks at Ali and winks. He winks back at her. The bell calls for round eight, and both fighters stagger back into the center. George swings for a kill shot, but misses by a mile and nearly falls out of the ring. George tries to regain his pose. He's got Ali on the ropes, in the corner, and he's punching, punching, but nothing is landing. And then Ali sees something, an opening, and begins punching his way out of the corner. He throws a right, another right, and then George backs off. Ali throws another right, left, right, and George moves to the middle of the ring, and Ali throws a hard left that tilts Foreman's head into position. And then Ali unloads with a right straight into Foreman's jaw. Ali sees he's dazed, and the heavyweight champion... He's in the half dream room for the first time of his life. His eyes glaze over, the alligators begin playing trombones, and he windmills to the canvas floor. And the ref counts down and the fight is over. crowd in the Zaire stadium rushes the ring the soldiers can't keep them back they can't keep them from their champion the people's champion and now once again the, the world heavyweight champion quotes the a reporter claws his way to the crowd and yells at me how did you do it world heavyweight champion what do you think of george now i shake my head i want to go to my dressing room i don't want to tell him what george has taught me that too many victories can weaken you that the defeated can rise up stronger than the victor but I take nothing away from George. He can still beat any man in the world, except me. End quote. Muhammad Ali would go on to box until he could box no more. He toyed with retirement here and there, especially when he started to get beaten by younger and stronger boxers. One of the champ's last bouts was against Larry Holmes, who it said didn't even really want to fight the aging Ali but Ali needed the money. It was an 11-round disaster, and Ali was still tough and he hung in there, but Holmes dominated the fight. And immediately after the match, Howard Cosell interviewed Holmes, and he noticed he had tears in his eyes. Cosell asked him why he was crying, and he said that he respected Muhammad Ali a whole lot, and he can't take anything away from him. In 1992, there was a special television event for Muhammad Ali's 50th birthday, and by this time, He had been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease for eight years now. and He could barely walk or talk. Howard Cosell, who had advocated for Ali for those years during his objection to the Vietnam War and banishment from boxing, delivered a special birthday message for the People's Champion.
1: It's hard to believe all the years, everything that's passed between us. It's so hard to believe and so memorable now, it's time to say to you, Muhammad, God bless you and happy birthday to you. And you know something? You are exactly who you said you are. You never waver. You are free to be who you want to be.
0: I love you. Inevitably, of course, Muhammad Ali, the scrappy young kid with a heart bigger than his boxing career, that cocky, swaggering boxer whose greatest fight was outside the ring and against the United States government no less. that legend who called himself the greatest and made damn sure he lived up to it, finally left this world on June 3, 2016. He was 74. His pallbearers were Will Smith, Lennox Lewis. Mike Tyson, George Cavallo, Larry Holmes, and George Foreman. His memorial service was watched by a billion people, the same amount of people who watched his rumble in the jungle. Years later, when asked about Ali's claim that he was the greatest, George Foreman said, quote, Ali is the greatest man that I've ever known, not the greatest boxer. That's too small for him. He had a gift. He's not pretty. He's beautiful. Everything America should be, Muhammad Ali is. End quote. After his fights, the crowd always wanted to talk to Ali, to hear from their champion, to get one more word out of him. Quote, The screams are so loud they sound far away. Then the crowd, pushing, shoving, reporters shouting. They want something from me, something more, some word or comments. but I'm too tired. And besides, I already told them, and I already told you. Didn't you hear me? I said I was the greatest. I am the greatest!
2: By Cassius Clay! This is the legend of Cassius Clay, the most beautiful fighter in the world today. He talks a great deal and brags indeedy of a muscular punch that's incredible incredibly speedy. The physic world was dull and weary. With a champ like Liston, things had to be dreary. <laughs> then someone with color, someone with dash, brought fight fans a-running with cash. <laughs> this brash young boxer is something to see, and the heavyweight championship is his destiny. This kid fights great. He's got speed and endurance. But if you sign to fight him, increase your insurance. <laughs> this kid's got a left. This kid's got a right. If he hits you once, you are asleep for the night. And as you lie on the floor, while the ref counts 10, you pray that you won't have to fight me again. For I am the man this poem is about. The next champ of the world, there isn't a doubt. This I predict and I know the score. I'll be champ of the world in 64. When I say three, they go in the third. So don't bet against me, I'm a man of my word. If Casher says a cow can lay an egg, don't ask how. Reach that skillet. He is the greatest. Yes, I'm the man this farm is about. I'll be champ of the world, there isn't a doubt. Here I predict Mr. Liston's dismemberment. I'll hit him so hard, he'll wonder where October and November went.
0: I had an incredible time writing this episode, and I'm ashamed to admit that I knew virtually nothing about Muhammad Ali prior to any of this, so it was a huge learning experience for me. There simply was not enough time to get into every facet of his life, and there's a lot more to tell. His personal and romantic life, including his extramarital affairs, were largely left out because they didn't fit into the narrative focus, which was more about his public mission and boxing career. Also, his connections to the Nation of Islam and the evolution of his Islamic faith could be a whole episode in and of themselves, and there just simply wasn't enough time. If you enjoyed that episode and you feel like it's worth at least a dollar, I would gladly appreciate that dollar. These things are not free to produce. There's research costs that go into it, production costs that go into it. And so if you want to help me create more of these episodes and become a supporter of the show, you can head over to patreon.com slash history. Every dollar is appreciated, I promise you. Another way you can help the show is by leaving me a rating or review wherever you listen. Those ratings are pivotal in getting the show out to more listeners. It's how we trickle up to the top of the feed. If you want to get a hold of me, you can email me at stephen.dejulius at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is at sdejulius, or you can go to the Written in Blood Facebook page. I'm very active there. And of course, I always need to thank my kid sister, Courtney, for the awesome cover art that she does for these shows. If you are in need of freelance work, she's a great resource. You can find her at cjdejulius.myportfolio.com. And so this has been Written in Blood History, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. And I'm going to end the show a little bit differently here, using the actual tagline of the show that I realize I've never used when I sign on or sign off. And that is, history is people. These are their stories, and they are written in blood. We'll see you guys later. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons.
1: Think behind the music for the stuff we love.
0: Check out our website at 2 com, and listen
1: wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com.